Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Hello, dress listeners. So for the past five seasons and almost five years, April and I have been bringing you a wide range of stories exploring and celebrating the significance of clothing from throughout history and around the world. We are currently on hiatus, researching a way for a brand new season of Dressed. Season six will launch on January 17th, 2023. And until then, we want to share with you some of our favorite Dressed classic episodes from the archive of almost 400 past episodes. Enjoy! Cast today we will discuss the life and career of the greatest designer Spain has ever seen, and one just might argue Paris too, because I bet if you ask any fashion historian or fashion journalist to rank the greatest of the greats, his name will absolutely appear on that list. You know, he is the man that Christian Dior declared, quote, the master of us all, which is really a supreme compliment when you consider Dior himself was at the very apex of his own legendary career at that time. Yeah, and we are, of course, speaking of Cristobal Balenciaga, who in many ways is an intriguing enigma, even to us fashion historians, because he left us with an extensive and incredible body of work. But unlike designers such as Paré, Dior, Balmain, and others, he did not leave behind a memoir. And in fact, in the 50-plus year time span of his working career, he never even granted a single interview. So we really depend on his clothing to speak to his legacy. Exactly. And the clothes, I mean, once you have seen an original (laughs) Balenciaga garment in person, you understand the precise perfectionism of this man who single-handedly undertook experimentations in construction and silhouette that stunned the world and earned him a legion of loyal customers from all over the globe. And to learn more about Cristobal Balenciaga, we are delighted today to be joined by Mirren Arzaluz, the director of the Palais Galliera in Paris, which is one of the world's foremost collections of fashion and textiles. And she is most uniquely qualified to speak to us about the man, the myth, Balenciaga, because prior to her tenure at the Galliera, she served as the head curator of the Museo Balenciaga, a museum in Spain dedicated to his life and career. So welcome, Mirren. Mirren, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Thank you. It's my pleasure to yeah. be here. Well, we really couldn't be more thrilled um, to be discussing the life and career of Cristobal Balenciaga because few, if anybody, on this planet knows more about him than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell our listeners how you first came to be studying his work? Well, I was actually in London when I decided to study dress history at the Cultural Institute of Art. And um, when I had to choose my my subject, my theme for the for my dissertation. And uh, while it was, it came like a natural thing to, to choose Balenciaga, whom is something I knew 
from before. He's also Basque, like I am. And um, it struck me that I knew very little about him. And um, there was all this myth around him, you know, this Spanish couturier in Paris uh, who arrived at, uh, you know, relatively late time in his life and suddenly got this amazing success. And everybody talked about his origins as an obscure part of his life. And I wanted to to discover these origins because this is precisely where I came from. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, to know more about the man, about where his origins and how he had been forged in a way. Right. And this actually evolved into a professional position as the curator of the Cristobal Balenciaga Museum in Spain. Um, And the location of the museum is especially significant. Um, And tell me if I'm saying it right. Is it Guitaria? Yes, absolutely right. And because Guitaria is not only his birthplace, um, but it's also, like you said, located in the Basque region of Spain. Um, And for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with the geography or the kind of very specific, unique culture of this region, can you give us a little bit um, about background? Well, Basque people is, um, well, it's a a very distinct uh, culture with a very distinct uh, history and a very particular, peculiar language, which is the the oldest language in Europe, Mm. alive, (laughs) alive. And um, you you have Basques in both sides of the border. You have Basques in the in 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 France, and you have Basques in Spain. Uh, so Balenciaga came from the uh, Spanish side of the Basque country, uh, from this very very small fishing village uh, called Guitaria, which is um, nevertheless a fascinating place to have been born at this particular time uh, in the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. And he was born in January of 1895, if I'm correct. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances of his birth and his early family life? Yeah, well, he was, um, his father was a fisherman and his mother was a, uh, was a seamstress. Mm. So he basically uh, learned how to sew uh, with his mother, who played a very, very fundamental role in his life. And his mother, uh, his father, excuse me, he had been uh, also mayor of the town. Mm. Uh, but what is most important, or maybe when it comes to Balenciaga's, you know, sort of passion for couture, is that he worked for the Spanish royal family uh, during the summer. Uh, because he was a captain of a small boat uh, which uh, was dedicated to custom surveillance during the year. Mm-hmm. But since the Spanish royal family uh, spent their summer in nearby San Sebastian, which is uh, a very, it was at the time already a very important international summer resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he worked for the royal family during the, the summer. And that would, of course, uh, give a... Cristobal Balenciaga, when he was very young, when he was a child, well, a vision of uh, sort of also fashions uh, of the royal family. And his mother, well, he was very, very important. She taught uh, how to sew to the girls in the in the town, but she also worked for prominent families in the area. And these were prominent families who came to the Basque coast following the royal family in the summer. Uh, because it was not only San Sebastian, it was neighboring Biarritz, which is a Basque town in the French side right. of the Basque country, which was 
a, an even more important international summer resort. So it was all this sort of microcosm mm-hmm. of luxury that brought very uh, many prominent families, Spanish and as from elsewhere, international families, to the Basque Coast. So she had this very important client called La Marquesa de Casatorres. Oh, you beat me to my next question yes. for you. So yes, thank you. She, she <laughs> was a very, very important figure for Balenciaga when he was a child. And in fact, it was him himself who told this story. And this is very important because, as you know, Balenciaga only gave two interviews in his whole life. Yes. It was two interviews he gave after he had closed his house and not during his career. And um, it is it really struck me when I was doing research about him that he would speak precisely about this early time in his life, of his childhood, his origins, his time in Gitarri in San Sebastian. So it must have been very, very important for him. And so he, he tells himself how he... Of course, he knew La Marquesa because mm-hmm. um, he was a very good client of uh, his mother's. Uh, but he was fascinated by this woman who came to Mass every Sunday, as he himself told, uh, coming down from her Tilbury, uh, dressed in these glorious, uh, you know, Sunday dresses, which were probably Paris or Couture, because I've seen after afterwards I have been the chance to see some of the family archive uh, papers and, and of course it's full the full it's full of um, receipts and uh, and all sorts of documentation from Worth, Paris and all the couture houses. So you can only imagine uh, what she was wearing. And uh, she, he was brave enough to present himself. He must have been he must have been very young, around ten. Uh, so he introduced himself to, to her and uh, he asked her a favor from her. And this was would I be able to see your wardrobe? <laughs> so she must have been completely... Very precocious 10-year-old oh, yeah. child. Uh, she must have been completely taken by this completely unexpected request. And she said yes. So every day after school, uh, he wouldn't play with his mates from school. He would just go to the villa that Mar- the Marquesa had in, in Guitaria, mm-hmm. to the top floor, well, the you know the, the servants of the house would be ironing, uh, uh, would be taking care of the wardrobe of La Marquesa, and he would have you know he would have this time for himself to study every single detail, wow. every single pleat, to to study the the you know the the textiles, the materials, the the construction. Mm-hmm. So he had the best school uh, of haute couture ever, without even get, stepping out of his very little fishing village. Yeah. So it is an extraordinary training experience. And, and we've talked about this on Dress before that um, not only did training start at so much of a younger age, but a lot of the great designers throughout history, their passion mm. really had revealed itself like before they were even 10 years old. At such a young age, yeah. yes, of course. But uh, he did actually officially train as a tailor, yeah. I'm correct. Um, and he started again young at the yeah. age of 12 in San Sebastian, what happens there kind of rather quickly? What's what are his early his early years working as a tailor in San Sebastian? Well, I think the tailoring uh, was a very important part of his training, and I think you can actually understand his work, his later work, and his achievements, technically speaking, when it comes to construction, thanks to this very important tailoring training. Mm-hmm. And so this was his very first years, and then he went into work very briefly in a. Uh, Au Louvre establishment in uh, in San Sebastian, so it was a franchise from the the Paris headquarters, and then he 
very early decided to do his thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, of course, he had he knew Paris and all couture couturiers and couture collections very early. So probably at the age of 17, 18, 19, he was already traveling to, to Paris to know this world that fascinated him. Mm-hmm. And very early on, he decided to do his thing. The, the interesting thing is that Saint-Sébastien was such a an interesting place when it comes to fashion and luxury, that he could do this without having to move to Paris. Yeah. And so he, he opened his house in 1917. At first he had some associates, but then he was alone from 1924 onwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he became a very, very well-known and consolidated uh, couturier, first in Spain, but of course I'm persuaded that he was very well-known in Paris as well. Mm. Not only because there were many Parisians in the Basque Coast following this, this sort of summer uh, resort um, experience, uh, but also because he, he uh, his companion, uh, his lifelong uh, companion was Parisian mm-hmm. and he was very well connected. So he was, I mean, if he didn't move to Paris until so late, it's because he didn't really needed it. To. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And in Sebastian, and and then spreading um, into other cities, including Madrid and Barcelona. Yes. Um, he kind of undertakes an interesting business structure. Yeah. He has multiple businesses running at the same time. Absolutely. Um, one of them being under his own name, um, Balenciaga. Um, the other one being a shortening of his mother's last name. Will you tell us about uh, yeah. that, which he founded in 1927? Asa. Yeah, of course. These were very convulsed. Uh, times when it comes to the political and economic situation in Spain. So when he started, it was a very, um, uh, I don't know, it was a golden time for him because he had the royal family, his client, I mean, all the ladies from the royal family, including the two queens who are his clients from 1925 onwards. So it was, you know, the golden age of Oso San Sebastián as, as a summer resort. But then, uh, you know, political changes came and it would be too long to go into detail. But he, what I mean is he adapted himself Mm-hmm. Uh, to the changes. So um, he continued doing haute couture in, you know, following the, the, the Parisian model, but he also did sort of in-between uh, business uh, models. Mm-hmm. So uh, something in-between haute couture and uh, ready-to-wear. Mm-hmm. I like to call it demi-couture sometimes. Demi-couture, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so this is exactly what he would do. Yeah. He would continue doing haute couture following the Paris model, but he would do a sort of demi-couture as well. Mm-hmm. And he used different names and different brands mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to differentiate uh, his work, which was always sort of directed to a different public. We're going to take a short sponsor break. And after we do, we're going to hear a little bit more from Mirren about Balenciaga's work in Paris. Welcome back. I'd like to turn our attention to the clothes themselves here for a moment, because that's something that we really haven't touched on. Um, And there's been a lot written about um, the influence of Spanish culture on Balenciaga's work. So what were his inspirations at this early part of his career, and how did it play out in the garments? Okay, well, I think he... He was, first of all, uh, he was fascinated by fashion history. Absolutely fascinated. He had his own fashion, uh, historic fashion collection. He collected textiles. He collected garments from the 18th, 19th, early 20th century. He had a very beautiful uh, fashion history library. So he was fascinated, you know, on top of everything else, 
by fashion history. Of course, for him, you know, his cultural references were the art of his country, uh, especially from the beginning. And 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 I have to talk about La Marquesa again, the Marquesa de Casadores, and his and his husband, Cesario, uh, Aragon Berrota Lamar, because they had the most fascinating art collection. And so, not only did this couple introduce him into the world of couture, but it would also be an introduction to the world of Spanish art because they had the most incredible collection of Spanish masters. So it's almost like an overall cultural education Absolutely. that he had. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, it was no formal education. Right. But when it comes to, to inspiration and, um, you know, static references and, and uh, you know, not only cultural reference, but the most, you know, obvious aesthetic reference mm-hmm. are there from the very beginning. And it's interesting because um, Bettina Ballard, the great fashion editor, wrote something rather controversial. If, if you really dig into what Balenciaga scholars like yourself have to say, you know, she said that she wrote in one of her memoirs that he didn't know a lot about fine art. Yeah. But I think... I she th- said something terrible, like he doesn't know the art or history of his country. <laughs> yeah. It was very tough. But, and I, I don't think she meant it... Uh, she meant any harm because she was a really good friend of his and she was invited to his house in San Sebastian very often and so she got very close to him which was not the usual thing. Mm -hmm. But I think he just didn't he just didn't share these things. He didn't care about what others thought. And he didn't spend one minute explaining his work to people. He just wanted his work to talk for him. So uh, as, as frustrating as that can be for people like me who want to know more about him or what he thought about his work, we know nothing apart from the work itself. Mm-hmm. And it speaks for itself. I mean, uh, the colours. It's also, I mean, I don't want to, to underline the, the fact that he was Basque too much, but it is true that it's a, it's a frontier culture. Mm-hmm. So it's a very strong uh, input of Spanish and French culture. And, um, you know, the... The more the sobriety mm-hmm. of his work, the the darkness and sometimes of his palette, that's what I was the, the color palette is um, you could say it's very Castilian, and so you've got you know this intense black which he used not only because a lot of people talk about black in Balenciaga as you know a sign of his also his religiousness and his you know this inspiration of of Catholicism, etc., which is of course true uh but he used black especially or as well to to focus the attention on silhouette mm-hmm. i mean it was the, the most efficient way of avoiding distraction uh from what he was most interested in which was experimentation with silhouette right. and so uh well but then, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, all these references are very obvious to religious uh, dress, the color palette. Lots of lace. Yeah. But it's also a way of, you know, this sobriety mm. that he was talking about, this, the the absence of unnecessary adornment. Uh, this is very Castilian, very Basque as well. Uh, and it's all there. And the colors I was talking yesterday with uh, one of our curators, Pale Galea, who is the curator of Balenciaga in Black, mm-hmm. the exhibition that is currently at the Kimball Art Museum. Um, in Texas, in Fort Worth. In Texas, Fort Worth. And yes. I saw it in Paris a couple of years ago. Yeah. Fabulous. Fabulous exhibition, and it looks fabulous at the Kimball too. And, um, you know, we were talking about this. The Palace is extraordinary for Paris of Couture. You have the most, the strangest greens, blues, greys, the very, and these are colors that I can totally identify in in Basque, mm. you know, in the Basque countries, the colors of nature, but which are not necessarily the colors that were 
often used in Paris haute couture in the 1930s when he arrived there. So, yeah, I mean, his culture is very present in his work. Um, Speaking of the 1930s, uh, political unrest plays out in the 1930s in Spain. Um, What exactly happened and how did this affect Balenciaga's operations in Spain? Well, in 1931, I mean, it's not the only (laughs) uh, political change, but in 1931, the, the, it was the proclamation of the Second Republic in Spain, so all the royal family, the aristocracy, fled the country, and this was a very, very big, uh, had a very big impact on Balenciaga's work because he lost his most uh, yeah. distinguished clientele. So he really had to adapt. It's not that he didn't have any clients left because he certainly had, you know, intellectuals, artists, and the bourgeoisie of the Basque Country, which was very burgeoning uh, middle class. And of course, he had he had plenty of clients, but it was not. It, it's, it's not that I want to do. Uh, I want to classify, you know, clients. But it's true that they didn't have the same. Um, how do you say this? Uh, his business in took a, a hit. Way. Yeah, his business took a hit because some of his his clients disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. Well, his yeah. business took a hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in 1936, with the official outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, um, Balenciaga left Spain. Um, briefly for London, which didn't pan out very well. Um, So then he continued on to Paris. But what was the fate of the Spanish houses in San Sebastian, Madrid, and Barcelona? Did they remain open once he traveled and began working in Paris? They did, right? As far as I know, yes, they did. Of course, it was not, uh, you know, in uh, in full... uh activity, but they remained uh, open because he, he didn't know what was going to happen. Right. Nobody knew what was going to happen. A civil war breaks out, you, you, you don't know. The only thing you know is, well, Spain didn't seem the, the most appropriate place in the world for uh, a couture establishment. And I'm, I'm convinced that he had already thought about moving into Paris mm. before. It's just the civil war forced him uh, to do it, well, maybe sooner than he had expected to. Right, right. Uh, but he never closed his Spain, uh, his houses in Spain. So uh, San Sebastian, Madrid, uh, Barcelona, they, they kept on working. Of course, they kept, they, they, they reassumed normal activity after the Civil War ended, uh, especially in the, in the early 1940s. And uh, they became, well, a sort of um, a reflection of what he was doing in Paris. So he didn't do different things. Of course, he had to adapt uh, his work in Spain to Spanish clients. It was, uh, you know, during 40 years, there was uh, this very um, well, uh, was dictatorship in, in Spain, uh, religious, you know, sort of re- religious thinking uh, and um, a very conservative uh, ideology run the country for a very long time. So that affected also the way women dressed. Right. Uh, so you didn't have the, you know, the most spectacular things that he presented in Paris in Spain. But uh, but it was really, really the same thing he was, mm. he was doing in both. Interesting. Places. That was going to be a question that I was going to ask a little yeah. later. <laughs> but let's talk about Paris now, if, if we will. Um, because overall, right off the bat, overwhelmingly, his reception was quite warm. Um, you've written a book about um, him, of course, which is called <laughs> The Master in the Making. Um, and you make a note that the French fashion magazine L'Officiel um, they called his first collection that was shown in Paris as being, quote, full of taste and distinction, <laughs> which is high praise from the Parisian fashion press. Um, so was it just smooth sailing for him from then on? Did things just 
go quite well from the very beginning in Paris because World War II was only a short while off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had just fled the Spanish Civil War pretty much only to walk quickly into the Nazi occupation of Paris. Mm -hmm. What were those early years in Paris like for him? Well, I think, um, I mean, he after the opening, uh, as you were just now mentioning, the reception by the press was very good. And this is why I also think he was already very known in Paris. You can't just arrive in Paris uh, to the Mecca of fashion, open up a couture establishment and have have this success, you know, coming out from nowhere. So uh, I think he was very well known already, also for, by the press. So it was a smooth in this way, but he had to fight a lot in the beginning, like everyone who starts a couture establishment yeah, in Paris. Of but he was smooth until the war broke out, which was only two years after, 1939, and then the, the Nazi occupation of Paris came in 1940, and it was a very difficult time for France in general, Paris in particular, and haute couture as well. So he remained open. He had a bit of a crisis, I, th I think it's a fascinating episode, uh, which has not been very much talked about, uh, the, because the Nazis uh, closed his house, because he had used uh, more material that had been um, uh, permitted at the time. Uh, because rationing was in Absolutely, practice. yeah. And um, so they closed his house, and he had to uh, ask for help uh, for the help of the Spanish embassy at the time, which was um, an embassy of the of the new government in Spain, so the the, the Francoist uh, government in Spain, who had who was in very good terms with the Nazi regime, so he had a bit of a help to sort of to persuade uh, the German occupants to reopen his house. But the most interesting thing in the letters that I found about this this story is that the Germans considered that it was an exemplary. Uh, sort of closure, not only because he had used more material that was permitted, but he they made him responsible for the fashion of big hats in Paris at the time, and of course this this amazing, uh, huge hats uh, yes. during the, the the Nazi occupation in Paris has have been a you know a whole of a subject in fashion history, and it has been interpreted as a you know, as a reaction to, to, to imposition, as a resistance, as a sign of resistance and rebellion. So uh, I found it fascinating that the Germans considered Balenciaga to be the person responsible oh, for this fashion. That's interesting. Um, and that, it's fascinating, but he, he survived uh, during the war. And which, which is, I find very interesting as well is when I talk about experimentation with silhouette and about all this sort of voluminous uh, silhouettes that he started exploring in the 1940s and 50s, precisely started during, during this period, during the war years, uh, because I found some sketches from 1942 with already this sort of thinking of body and silhouette, you know, this volume, this, um, well, it is precisely the, com the complete opposite to Dior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was something else that I wanted to talk about, um, because it's, it's, it's this point where his work becomes more sculptural, like Absolutely. architectural almost. Yeah. Um, and and one of my questions to you is, do you think that his inspirations for some of these things became slightly decidedly more Spanish in light of the fact that he was working in France now? Mm, I don't know. Or was just really. the next phase of his career? Yeah, I think, I think he, once he felt himself established, in Paris and, uh, you know, sort of known and um, 
celebrated mm-hmm. uh, or in the 1940s and 1950s, he started doing what he really wanted to do. And this is why his most extraordinary work is from the 1950s and especially from the 1960s, mm-hmm. the most, uh, you know, sculptural, architectural, uh, amazing abstract work is what he did in, in the last collections in the 1960s mm-hmm. before closing 1968. Um, so I think he, he had this, he really started exploring what he really wanted to do. But I think he had been trained in this fascinating period of fashion history, which is the 1920s and 30s. And he admired all these women like Vionnet, like Chanel, like Louise Boulanger. These are women that he himself mentions as the most, the best couturiers in the world mm. in one of these interviews I was referring to before. And um, I think there was a lot of uh, rethinking silhouette and rethinking the body in this early 20th century uh, fashion. And this is what he, in, in, in a way, he continued to do in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. With, you know, it's, we all assume when we do fashion history that with Dior, sort of, we have this revival of 19th century silhouette and all these sort of achievements, in my opinion, of early 20th century stop after right. the war. But I think Balenciaga was precisely someone who continued in yeah. this vein. Yeah, because because you know at the moment when the new look was happening and and women were 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 becoming you know recorseted, wearing these very tight foundation garments, jackets were tightly tailored. Balenciaga's clothes were actually moving away from the body. Exactly, there's space between the clothes and the body, um, and that's just continuing that lineage of of people like Vionnet, who he so revered. Absolutely. to turn our attention to Balenciaga the man because um, yeah. he seems a bit mysterious to me. Um, you know, we read all these accounts um, describing him, his ateliers, and the word austere comes up over and over and over again. What was he like in person? Wow. And and how did this translate into his working habits? Mm. Oh, wow. He was a perfectionist. Oh, yeah, yeah. But obsessively perfectionist. He was obsessed by his work throughout his life. I mean, he lived for fashion, for couture, for perfectioning the construction of his creation, really. And he, this is what, in fact, one of the two interviews I constantly refer to, because it's the only thing we have from him, really, is called uh, La Vie d'un Chien, which is the life of a dog. Mm-hmm. That's the title of the exhibition, because he himself says something like, you know, and I think it's it's for the Times, the, the, the Times um, magazine, in 1971, he says, you know, under all this glamour, I realized that, you know, I had a, the life of a dog. So he realizes that he's just left for working. Mm-hmm. Um, he was insatiable. He was perfectionist. He was obsessed by work. He was insatiable. He made very harsh judgments, but he was so harsh on himself. Uh, I think he was harder on himself than he was on every, everyone that uh, surrounded him. But that made him very difficult to work with. But at the same time, he had this very human side of him. He was very generous. He helped people all the time without really saying or talking about it. And and people adored him because mm. of this. He had a sort of authority um, that, you know, no one else had. And you can see this also in the reaction of his contemporary colleagues like Dior or Chanel or Vionnet, everyone talks about him with, well, admiration. 
and yeah, respect. Him. Absolutely. Um, you know, Dior, of course, declared him the master of us all. Mm-hmm. But he also said that I am Dior because of Balenciaga, mm-hmm. which is a lovely compliment. And also illustrates kind of like their complete different takes on fashion in the same absolutely. moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also, of course, we've spoken this about this undress already on our Givenchy episode, was a great mentor to Aubert de Givenchy. Oh, yeah. And also two very important couturiers would come out of his house being um, assistant designers, um, Karej yes. and Angaro. Yes. Um, so what do you think their, what would you think the legacy of them training under Balenciaga was in their work? Well, I think, um, well, in, in the case of Courage, it's so, so obvious. You know, there's, of course, he was a tailor at, uh, at Balenciaga for 10 years. So you can imagine, and you can see that in his work. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the structure, the perfection of his tailoring, the, and how he used this in a revolutionary way in the 1960s. Uh, the same way as Balenciaga was a revolutionary in his own way. And it's a pity that he didn't train more people, I have to say. Uh, but he was such a close house and a close team that you know you wouldn't have a lot of people going around Balenciaga. He didn't he didn't socialize with maybe people. Of course he socialized and he was a much funnier character, a much, you know, more interesting character than some people would like to to picture him, you know. He was a very closed man in you know, he, he was a very reserved man. So he didn't he didn't share much either unless you 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 were very close to him. Right. Um and you touched on this earlier and this was something else that I was gonna ask because I don't. I know next to nothing about his personal life. He obviously had a lifelong partner. What yeah. was that relationship? He had two partners. In fact, uh, he had a, a very fascinating uh, partner. Uh, his name was Vlatsio Datenville. His um, father was Polish and his mother was a uh, Parisian and a very elegant Parisian aristocrat. aristocrat. And um, I think he he really was very influential in Balenciaga's life. He, in fact, designed hats oh. in the house. Uh, but he moved, in fact, he moved to San Sebastian very early on because I found them living together in San Sebastian already in 1924. Oh, wow. So it's very early on. We don't know where they met. It was his late 20s. He would have been 28, 29. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's a very early relationship. We don't know where they met. It could have been Paris. It could have been Biarritz. It could have been San Sebastian, precisely because of these people moving around the Basque Coast at the time. But he decided very early on to to work with them in the creation of this of this uh, couture house. Oh, wow. And um, well, I've spoken with very few people who met him because obviously they've all disappeared. But everyone seems to to think that he was the most fascinating, elegant, charming cultivated man in the world. And I think he must have softened as well uh, Balenciaga's character. And he must have, you know, sort of mediated, he must have been a a, a bit of a, you know, the the person who mediated between Balenciaga and the world in a way. Uh, But he died young, and that was a very, very hard blow for Balenciaga in 1948. And we have different accounts saying that he was on the point of closing his house because he lost his mother and his partner Almost at the same time. Oh, my gosh. 1948-49. And he had a major crisis, and he was on the point of closing. And there's rumors said, you know, there's there's all these stories that you never get to really document, uh, that um, Dior went to see him, you know, sort of begging him not to close because, you know, Haute Couture without Balenciaga would not be Haute Couture anymore. 
So that's the story. I don't know if it's true, but it's a beautiful story. Anyway. <laughs> I like the story. <laughs> so um, so he didn't close Feynman, but it was very hard for him to continue. And uh, and his first collection after the death of his partner was really the blackest collection ever in the history of Balenciaga. And then he continued, and then in later on he had another another partner who was Basque like himself, and uh, who was completely different. But I think he really made his life much more cheerful. He, he brought some happiness in his life, yeah. So we need to wrap up soon. Yes. But will you tell us a little bit about um, the end of his career? Mm-hmm. Um, because he did close up his Paris operations in the late 1960s. And I think a few years later, the houses in Spain continued on. But what was the reason for that closure? Was Was he just tired? He wanted to retire? Was there a specific reason? I think mainly he was tired. He had been working all his life, and he was very tired. And also, it was um, a moment where he understood, well, you know, this world is disappearing. You know, Paris or Couture, you know, in the wave of 1968, I mean, it's just a moment, a revolutionary moment in Paris and elsewhere. So um, fashion is undergoing a major change, and Couture is seen as, a, you know, an old sort of, a, well, a fossil <laughs> Right. Somehow, uh, by all the younger generation who wants to be dressed and express the, themselves in a very different way. So, and it would on, on not to interrupt, but it would kind of be Courage and Angaro that picked up that absolutely picked up that uh, absolutely. mantle to do so. Yeah, and in fact, it is um, the daughter of uh, La Marquesa de Llanzol, who was a, a very, very, very loyal client of Balenciaga in Spain, who tells that. Oh, he, he used to say, you know, I would have done a beautiful uh, prêt-à-porter ready to wear if I was younger. So this myth, you know, about him closing because he was offended by, you know, the, the lack of quality and, you know, he didn't want to continue in this horrible ready to wear. It's not true. I really don't believe that. He was much modern than that. And he had been adapting himself to different situations all the way throughout his life. So I don't think he was, you know an ideolo- almost ideolo- ideological stance, he just thought, well, I'm too old to right. start. A new venture. Yeah, exactly. From scratch. Exactly. I'm sure your collection at the Palais Galia has wonderful Balenciaga garments in it. Indeed. Would, would you tell our listeners a little bit about your collection in Paris and maybe any upcoming projects that you'd like to speak about? Yeah, or well, tease? <laughs> the Balenciaga collection in, Paris, in, in Galia is just wonderful. I mean, there are some some really, really fundamental uh, works uh, of his career. But then what I find fascinating is that the things that he himself donated to the to the museum after he had closed his house, and knowing how perfectionist he was, to have decided to donate his work to a museum that, you know, it, it tells you a lot about what he thought about these particular pieces, these particular objects. These are the ones. Oh, yeah. These are the ones. Yeah, knowing how he was... <laughs> It must have been something he valued very highly. And then what is very interesting is that his family also donated his personal historical fashion collection. And that tells a lot about him as well and about his work. And Palais Galea already organized uh, an exhibition some years ago, 2012, if I'm not mistaken, about um, him as a collectioner. Mm-hmm. Him and the influence of fashion history in his work. Oh, wow. And you could see, you know, the dialogue between his own work and the pieces from his own collection, the historical pieces mm-hmm. from his collection, which was a beautiful, beautiful exercise. 
And then, of course, uh, we recently have done the Balenciaga in Black, which is, you know, of course, Balenciaga has a very vibrant uh, colors in his in his work too, but the, his use of black is very particular. So it's a fascinating topic to explore as well. And if any of you have already seen the show in Paris, like I have, I believe there are new garments actually included in the show yes. at the Kimball Museum. I saw an ermine dress and I was like, that was not in Paris. No. I would remember that. That is a beautiful <laughs> contribution of the Texas Fashion Collection. Uh, there are some, there have been some slight changes uh, because of conservation, of course, as you know, uh, textile collections are very fragile. So sometimes we have to change uh, some dresses. Uh, but then there's this amazing contribution uh, by the Texas Fashion Collection. I mean, they have the most amazing collection in general and Balenciaga collection in particular. They have like around 400 Balenciaga dresses there, which are just breathtaking. So it was only logic to to incorporate the Texas Fashion Collection in a Texas uh, exhibition. And we're very grateful. I believe that's open until January. Yes. Is that correct? So you have time. Yeah. So, Miran, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed um, to talk about one of the most revered designers in all of the history of fashion. You know, this has been a real treat. Thank and you. And please, let's not let this much time pass until we get to talk to you again. Please come back and join us again for your next exhibition or any other project you'd like to talk about. I would about. just love that. All right. So I'll be back. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Mirren, thank you so much for joining us today. We will absolutely take you up on that offer to join us again soon. Uh, April, I for one was especially intrigued by learning more about the early part of Lentiaga's career in Spain. I think it's generally known he came from Spain, but the fact that he was already a well-established designer with royal clients for nearly 20 years prior to moving to Paris, well, that really deepens the story of his work. And perhaps also the little-known fact that his fashion houses continued on in operation in Spain for several years after the Paris operations closed in 1968. I mean, I had no idea about that until I started preparing to speak to Mirren for this episode. You know, and if you would like to learn more about his early career, you can check out Mirren's book, Cristobal Lanciaga, The Making of a Master, 1895 to 1936 which focuses solely on his time in Spain. And it is chock full of glorious images, Cass. Yeah, and the Balenciaga in Black exhibition is currently up at the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth, Texas until January 6, 2019. So you still have plenty of time to see that if you are in the Texas area. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. Perhaps you will consider wearing the master's favorite color black next time you get dressed. And remember, we love hearing from you. So please write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. And as always, a special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps make the show possible each and every week. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.